0: Heaven's statement on the value of your life is Easter. It's that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, and that whosoever means you. And Easter is also what sets Christianity apart from every other faith in the world. No other world... Or no other religion, rather, worships a God who actually loved humanity. He said "That's a pretty broad statement for you to make, Pastor." I've studied comparative theology, took a number of courses in it, and I can tell you this: that no matter which religion that you study, only Christianity teaches that there is a loving God, and Easter underscores that effect, that fact. Christianity is the, is the only religion in the world that actually positions God as caring so much that he would become a mortal and die for us and take our place and pay the penalty of our sins. Now, it's important before I, I preach today that I mention that we are, are a very pluralistic society. As you can look around and see in this church this morning, we have people from everywhere that come that are members and we love each other and get along and work together and worship together. But we are a very pluralistic society, and we have to work at that. And the way you do that is you always look for common ground that you share with other people. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who famously said, We didn't all get here on the same ship, but we're all in the same boat now. And that's pretty much the way it is, isn't it? Amen. We shouldn't condemn or hate the message of Christ actually is a message that opposes that. However, there have been things that have occurred, all this terrorist activity and things that are happening that people are reacting to out of justifiable concern. And you hear some statements being promoted that are actually falsehoods and I don't think they contribute to the promotion of unity. I think that at the end of the day if you make a statement that is not true, it actually will contribute to the opposite of unity. People say things like, it doesn't matter what religion you are because all roads lead to God. Every single one of us, even if we make that statement, if we know anything about scripture, know that's really not true. It doesn't mean we condemn other people because what we do agree on is that everyone that's hungering to know God, in whatever faith they are in, that that hunger to God is what drew us, and if they continue to seek God, it will draw them to know God. And I'll just say it like this. Nobody really in their heart or hearts believes all roads lead to God anymore and we believe all roads lead to Galveston or El Paso. Come on, get real. Some take you the opposite direction. You ever go the wrong way? Amen. So our kids are being told things like the statements I just made. They're hearing it on TV. They're hearing it in classrooms. And the reason that these things need to be reexamined is because the emphasis is being placed on religion. And you need to know up front that religion has always divided, but Jesus always has united. Amen. Amen. You remember that experiment in school when you were just in in grade school and the teacher took some iron filings and poured them on a piece of paper and then took a magnet? You remember that? And how that magnet drew everything together? That's Jesus Christ. He draws everything together. And that's why we're here today. Not to ignore the fact that the Christian faith has a distinctive, but rather to celebrate it. And that distinctive is our God loves us, sent his son to die in our place for us, and there's no other faith in the world that has that same basis for its foundation. However, that's not the only reason we come here. You can pretty much be sure that on Easter certain things are going to be talked about, right? And that's not just because of the reasons i've just stated but the sheer emphasis the weightiness the importance of what happened forget the other issues that have to do with unity and what I, all of that kind of stuff and but the very fact that it happened if you don't acknowledge that that's the most egregious thing you could do is fail to acknowledge that christ loved us god loved us so much that christ came to die in our place. And if for no other reason than that. On Easter you can expect to hear a certain kind of message. We not only have to preach it. Because there are others that are saying that it doesn't matter. But just the very event requires we discuss the details again. And you might get the mess, the idea that this is all we know. I heard about the guy that he and the pastor had been raised in school together. And were friends. and And one Sunday... When the minister finished preaching the guy had become so agitated with the sermon during the course of the sermon that on the way out he stopped to speak to the pastor and he said look he said you and i have known each other for years i'm gonna be honest with you you've got to do something about your sermons and the pastor said well bill what's the matter and he said every time i come here you speak on the same thing and the pastor said Oh, come on, Bill. If you'd come any time other than once a year on Sunday, you might hear something else. But on Sunday, you're going to hear something about resurrection. It's just the way it is. Amen. So I hope you don't leave today feeling that's all I know if you were last here or last Easter. Come next Sunday. I'll talk about something else. Amen. But today, I want to talk about the resurrection and what it means and what Jesus went through. I'm turning to Mark 15, 33 through 39. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is being translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him, notice that little phrase, who stood opposite him, the centurion was about as opposite of Jesus' as it's possible to be. Amen. He was a Roman, believed in a multiplicity of gods, a pantheon of 12 gods, major gods. Christ represented the teaching that there's only one God, the monotheistic theology, here, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Christ lived the law. The Romans embraced lifestyles that were conflicting with that of Christ. The Roman soldier was the guy actually in charge of the execution detail. He was a man of war. The guy hanging on the cross is the Prince of Peace. The exact opposite of Jesus in so many ways. And he said, when he heard Christ cry out, truly, this man was the Son of God. He saw something that overcame whatever differences he had and became so compelling that if you will allow me to paraphrase, this is what he was saying. You know, I didn't buy in at first. And I had my doubts. But I've had to sort through some things here standing by this cross this afternoon. And with what I've seen happen, I'm all in now. What he was saying, what I've seen today... That's good enough for me. I want to preach from the subject this morning. That's good enough for me. Father, I ask that you would speak a word to us now. Let your word open our understanding and let your truth penetrate our hearts. And may we be impacted by what happened 2,000 years ago on the day we celebrate today. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. How many of you would agree that we human beings can be quite difficult to persuade or convince sometimes? Would you agree with that? Come on, guys. Those of you that are married, be real. I know she's sitting right there beside you, but tell me. And ladies, on the other hand, aren't there times that it's a challenge to bring the man in your life around to your point of view? And you know what most of us do? We learn to be smarter, not louder. I hope you're at that wonderful stage in your life where you've learned to be smarter and not louder. Some people never do learn that. But you figure out that a man uh, convinced against his will is a man of the same opinion still. And so you look for better Ways to convince somebody, and you're like the two guys I was hearing about that were standing on the road near their church, waving a sign which said, The end is near, the end is near, turn back now before it's too late. And a pickup truck roared by, and the driver stuck his head out the window and yelled as he passed, Leave us alone, you religious nuts. And then from around the curve, there was heard the screeching of tires and a loud splash. And one of the guys with the signs turned to the other one and said, do you think this sign should just say, bridge out ahead? (laughs) You search for ways to convince people. Even in a criminal court, the judge talks about the need to find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And our system is unique. I was in a country just last week that the news said regarding Kenya, they had this to say. There's, the chief justice is on trial right now for bribery. And it's so common in that country that they, the newspaper, the media is reporting a common saying in Kenya now. And it's this, why hire and pay for an attorney when you can buy a judge? That's serious. Even though our system is not perfect, we sometimes let people go that maybe were guilty, and sometimes we might even imprison people who were not guilty. It isn't perfect? No system is. Kind of like the attorney one time. He turned to his client and said, after the, he had been acquitted, he said, "Sir, now that you've been acquitted, will you please tell me the truth? Did you steal that car?" And the client said, "Well." After hearing your amazing argument in court this morning, I'm beginning to think I didn't. (laughs) I'm talking about being persuaded, convinced. At the trial of Jesus, a decision was made that was more like the ones made in the country I talked about a moment ago. Forgive me for mentioning it. Think of it, the trial of Jesus, The absurdity of just that statement. The trial of Jesus. We just say that so glibly. The trial of God. That mere mortal men would ever put God on trial. Yes they did. And his case was determined by people that were there. Hearing supposedly the evidence. But every one of us put God on trial too. And we also have to make a decision about what we're going to do with Christ. For the Roman centurion, it was when Jesus cried out and said, It is finished that the Roman centurion reached the point that he said, Whatever reticence I have, reluctance I have to believe, at this point my, my objections have been overwhelmed and overcome. I'm all in. Truly, I don't care what you guys out there were saying. I'm talking about the Roman centurion. He's telling everybody around, that man was the son of God. And this from somebody who had every reason not to make a public statement like that. A Roman centurion, the number 100, our word for century comes from the same Latin word as the title of the office that he held. He was a centurion over 100 men. It was a place that he had worked all of his life to get to, a man of war. And he dare not upset his superior officers. That would be the end of his advancement right there, and maybe even the cause of his demotion. But something happened that day that he didn't care. Who went back and told his commanding officer? Even though he was the guy that had been tasked by the Roman governor to go carry out the crucifixion and execution of Jesus, his statement made was made publicly. You can hear me. I don't care who you tell. That guy we just got rid of, that was the son of God. That's a pretty astonishing statement because he had to overcome a lot of objections in his own mind to reach that place. First, he had to overcome his religious objections because he came from a different religious culture. They believed in a pantheon of 12 major gods that they worshiped in their temple. Everybody's heard of Jupiter and Venice and Apollo and and Mars. Those were Roman gods. They didn't believe in just one. And their gods were a lot different than our god because we think of God as being holy and righteous, not theirs. Their gods were actually amazing caricatures of ordinary people, bigger than life, cartoon-like characters. Really. And just like people are envious, they envied. We would never think of God being jealous in that that same way. And just like people got angry, they got mad. They fought with each other. They betrayed each other. They had affairs. I'm talking about their gods. They were were angry, capricious, you know, acted on a whim. Our God, not, not so. He's fair, infinitely fair and just. And this Roman centurion saw something in this man that completely conflicted with his own religious ideals and his own convictions. This was the man that would heal the sick and break a few fishes and loaves and feed a multitude and raise the dead and confront the religious frauds of his day. And strangely he didn't fight back under no circumstance would a Roman god let you do to him what was happening right now without making you sorely regret it. He also had to overcome the objections of those who accused the Christ. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. We also have to overcome our religious objections. Because many of us were raised with certain thoughts and feelings in our minds and, and, you know, certain beliefs. And we also have to overcome the objections of those who accuse God, too. You say, people accuse God today? Oh, yes, you know. They do. You tell somebody tomorrow morning, I went to church yesterday and they're going ah, to church thing. And there they go. And everybody knows somebody that's got a bad story to tell. Everybody. Somebody did me wrong kind of story. In church, they did me wrong. Amen. And they'll, they'll have a preacher story to tell. And preachers are not perfect. Like the guy said, I are one. You know? But I know for a fact, that most pastors are very devoted, but yes, just like in law there might be a, a, an attorney that is not to be trusted, or in medicine there might be a doctor that doesn't live out the, the oath that he took to help mankind, or just like there is a policeman who might not be straight up. None of us want to live in a society without policemen or without doctors. And you better not live in one without an attorney. (laughs) Not in the world we live in right now. And I can tell you, just like there's only a small percentage of policemen that that maybe are not committed to helping, very few pastors are actually guilty of some of the stuff that, that people say. But we all get tarred by that same brush. And you have to overcome objections before you can do something with this Christ on the cross. You have to deal with the, the stuff because people around you will talk you out of it. And I know people who are angry at God and so do you. There are probably some in this room right now. One of my own relatives lost a child, small child, and I'll never forget, walked outside, shook his fist at God and said, I'll never go to church again as long as I live and cursed. And to the best of my knowledge, he never did go to church again. And there are people that have lost loved ones, children, children, marriages ended in divorce, they've been betrayed, and ultimately, God, why'd you let me down? And you have to overcome your own religious objections. You have to overcome the objections of those who are accusing Christ, even maybe your own negative experiences. He also had to overcome his indifference toward what was happening and the indifference of his peers. because this guy Man, when they fought back then, it was look the enemy combatant in the eye, take your sword out, and cut him to pieces. This man, the Roman centurion, is the man that actually thrust the spear into the heart of Jesus Christ to make sure he was dead at the end of that day, so they could bury him. They were accustomed to brutality in war at a level you can't possibly imagine, even in the days. Modern times, because you can, I mean, somebody can sit and operate the controls of a little drone and, you know, do stuff miles and miles and many thousands of miles away and never see the, the consequences. But there you look the guy in the eye. And this was a hardened, battle scarred man, and his men were tough. But he saw something that day that moved him so much that, as I said, even though he was in charge of the execution detail, He said, this was the Son of God, guys. What we did wasn't right. And there are all kind of people that that even today don't really know what happened. I hear stuff from people that are supposed to know better saying that Jesus actually swooned on the cross. He didn't swoon. There's all kind of evidence. Do you know there's more documentation to the fact that Jesus lived than there is to even Nero Caesar living? And do you know they found all kind of documentation and ancient letters showing that Jesus was crucified and was buried. He was legally dead. And yet some folks think that he just swooned. And it, uh, there was once a radio preacher that was well known. Some of you might remember him. His name was Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Anybody remember that name? Of yesteryear. And a lady one time wrote to him. And said, dear Dr. McGee, our preacher said that on Easter Jesus just swooned on the cross and the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Dr. McGee wrote back and said, dear sister, he could be pretty acerbic at times. Beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours and run a spear through his heart embalm him and putting him in an airless tomb for three days and then see what happens. And we'll discuss whether or not Jesus swooned on the cross. All this stuff floating around out there, just like there was when Jesus was being crucified. All these stories, you got to wade your way through this and we have our challenges staying focused. The centurion also had to overcome his doubt that God would be willing to become a man. Trust me when I tell you, that if you've ever studied Roman gods, they wouldn't put up with this for a second. Uh Uh-uh. If they had decided to become a man, first couple of lashes of the whip, they would have reverted back real fast. And the whole human experience doesn't lend itself to go in this direction. That is to say, why would God leave his extraordinary place where he's worshiped and loved, to come here and go through this. It's the other way around. People are wanting superpowers, not God's wanting to give them up. What little child hasn't dreamed about being Superman or Batman or, or you know, Superwoman or, or one of these? What child hasn't dreamed of it? Everyone wants to live at a level higher than we humanly are talented enough or capable enough to be able to attain by ourselves and yet God did the exact opposite. God laid it all down. Royal robes of splendor, heaven, all of it. Walked out, came up mere a mere mortal man, came to be a mortal man. And the Roman knew his gods would never in a million years be willing to do that. They wouldn't allow themselves to be subjected to this kind of barbarous treatment at the hands of mere mortals. Raise a finger against me and see what I do to you is what they would say. In fact, I'll do it just because I feel like it. That was the attitude of his gods. They sought when they got mad and didn't get their way, and, and they plotted revenge and sought to get even, and they wouldn't go through this. Even more, the Roman centurion had to overcome his amazement that the reason for all of this was, get it, God loved humanity. Whatever else you might say about his gods, that was the one thing you could not say is that they loved people. Amen. Hey, come to think of it. Don't some of us struggle to believe God loved us sometimes? In fact, don't all of us? You go through life and you figure out you're not perfect and other people look down on you for that. And after a while, you pretty much get the idea if anybody's looking down on you, it's God that is looking down on you because he's more righteous than anybody judging you in your circle anyway. And if they're hating on you, what's God doing? He had to overcome that, and we have to overcome every one of these single objections. And for Jesus to come as God and flesh to die and atone for man's sins, oh, yeah. (laughs) What a story. Amen. Whatever the reasons he might have had that made it difficult to believe in the Christ, something happened that day that convinced him. It overcame all these objections, and he stepped out and set it in front of everybody there. Look, I'm in charge of the detail that's making this occur, but I want you to know that I think he was the Son of God. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Amen. And there in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the mob, his own soldiers, he declared his thoughts. What he was really saying is, and now I'm, I'm getting ready to close, was it's good enough for me. I have more objections than most folk, but what I've seen today, it's good enough for me. And I don't know about you, but when I come here on Easter Sunday morning. Whatever objections I may have to serving Christ are overlooked and forgotten in this one thing, that when I see what he did for me, my objections don't matter much anymore, and that's good enough for me. When I think about what he did for me, when I think about the price he paid and the agony he went through, When I couldn't help myself, it's good enough for me. And I want you to know I'm all in when it comes to this resurrection thing. So the question is, what should you do with Easter? First, like the centurion, you should experience it. He experienced it. And we've heard about it, but many of us having heard about it still haven't personally experienced it. And I want to assure you that hundreds of millions of people have experienced a personal encounter with the mighty God. Hundreds of millions. Hundreds of millions. And let me say a word in defense of Christianity. It seems that, that, that Christianity is pretty much an open target these days and people are asking, is there really any proof of God? Yeah, there is. There's hundreds of millions of people that have had an encounter with him, amen. Now, let me put this into perspective. If one person sees a heinous act committed, a crime committed, just one, is an eyewitness to it, doesn't hear about it, sees it, watches it, right? Okay, brought to trial, maybe it's against a child. And is convicted. Every one of us in this building would, today would say that, 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 that's fair. Amen. And if two eyewitnesses saw it, we're absolutely sure of his guilt. And you can increase the number of witnesses to the place that there's not any doubt in anybody's mind that this person did exactly what he's been accused of. But if they appealed to the Supreme Court, And it got all the way to the Supreme Court and the judges turned around and let that scallywag go. There would be an outcry and people would say, we had eyewitnesses. How many? One, two, three dozen? First of all, that would never happen. But if it did, I want to tell you it would be just as ridiculous. As somebody today saying there is no such thing as a personal encounter with God when hundreds of millions of people on the face of the planet have had them, including me and folks sitting all around you and most of you here today. I need somebody to say amen. And like the centurion, there has to come a point when you say, that's good enough for me. I may not have had it yet, but it doesn't mean it's not real. And so I'm just talking to you from the sheer perspectives of common logic. Does it make sense to ignore what so many people we all know and love have personally experienced? Secondly, don't just experience it. Take advantage of it and be grateful for it. By that I mean if you're not a believer, become one. Don't leave here today without giving your heart to God. Amen. Like I said, there's more stuff in the Bible than just the resurrection. I want you to know it contains principles for living life and teaches you how to be successful and have a great marriage and a great career and other things. And that's what I normally am talking about. Amen. to show you the benefits that are far superior, the Bible is really the owner's manual for life. It's not a bunch of rules that tell you what you can and can't do. And People have missed the point. And there again, that goes back to this whole thing about religion as opposed to Jesus, right? Amen. But if you aren't a believer, become one. And then secondly, if you aren't a member of a church, join this morning. Do you know that on the way in the door for the 730 as I was walking in, one of the precious ladies of this church that I've, I've seen come for years met me and said, you know, pastor, I've never become a member. I want to become a member. How do I go about it? And I directed her to the, the connections booth out in the lobby. If you are not a church member, you need to be so you can study the Word of God. And that way you can be here Sunday after Sunday and you'll know I preach stuff other than the resurrection. Amen. Amen. Really, I do. Amen. There's more to the Bible than just Jesus got up and, from the dead. And then, of course, we shouldn't neglect the eternal dimension of life either. And the Bible doesn't. Unfortunately, most people in talking about the Bible only think it has eternal consequences and and ramifications. But no. As I said, most of the Bible is about how to live right now. And yet there is another dimension. I've been doing research on NEDs. Do you know what those are? Near-death experiences or NDEs, I should say, near-death experiences, and there have been many people that have had them. We have, I know of at least two in this church that have had out-of-the-body experiences. That is where their heart stopped beating, and their spirit came out and stood over here and watched their body, and they went through this whole... We have people in this church that have experienced that And there are people that say, ah, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. You know what they found out? There are millions of people that now have experienced that. And nobody ever wanted to talk about it. And now science is actually beginning to engage in research. And you know what they found out? That these people, some were atheists, some were scientists, some were doctors, cardiologists, neurologists, professors. They were Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and so forth. And all of them, their hearts stopped beating. And they have these incredible stories of of when their hearts stopped beating their spirit stepped out of their body, which in itself defies the logic of life because they say that our consciousness is the product of our brain. And yet, once you're deprived of oxygen for just a few seconds, your brain stops functioning. And some of these went on for 45 minutes. And there's a story right now that's on the screen. You've heard of the movie, Miracles from Heaven the true story of a little girl from the Dallas area that had an incurable uh, digestive disease and, and went all the way up, was it to Yale? And the doctor said there, w- there isn't anything that can be done. A book was written about it and then they now made a movie about it that came out just this week. And then she was up in a tree and the tree broke and it was hollow. She fell inside the tree, landed on her head 30 feet and was, it took five hours for her to be rescued. And she was out of the body. And when she came, when they rescued her, she told this amazing story about I was sitting on the lap of Jesus. And Jesus said, your, time, your work on earth isn't finished. I'm sending you back. And, oh, by the way, you're not going to have this sickness anymore either. And the incurable disease was gone when they resuscitated her. Gone. Finished. Amen. They have no explanation for it. None none. Let me put that in perspective. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe man walked on the moon? Trick question? No, it's a serious question. Do you know only 24 people have ever visited the moon? That's right, 24. Of those, only 12 have actually walked on the surface of the moon. Yet, everybody here accepts it. There are a few folk out there that are members of what they call the Flat Earth Society. And they believe it was all filmed in a Hollywood setting in California. And it's been a government scam to bilk us of money. And that the earth is really still flat. (laughs) We laugh at people like that. And you know why we do? It's because 24 people visited the moon. You believe it because 24 people. Well, how logical is it that you don't believe in another world when millions have also already visited it? There is another world and it doesn't end at life. And these near-death experiences tell us there's something else. So first of all, experience Easter. Secondly, amen, take advantage of it and be grateful. And look, the man that is the Roman centurion, did you know that not only he, but some of the members of the detail that were responsible for beating and then crucifying Christ became devout, decri- devout Christians. That's right. His name is actually given to us by history. His name was Longinus. And he became a believer on the basis of what he saw that day. As did the man that used the, the cat of tails to beat the back of Jesus. He too became a believer. And others. And died serving God, because if this is real, you have to do something about it, and you gotta make up your mind, and that day, that man saw enough that persuaded him to make up his mind, and he said, I'm all in, that's good enough for me, I believe it, Jesus was the Son of God. When are you gonna make the same statement in your life? What are you gonna deal with it and address it? Because we all have to, and thirdly, you gotta tell somebody about it. Because once you figure out it is real, you can't keep it to yourself. Good news is meant to be shared, amen. It's just like finding a a good restaurant. You got to talk to somebody, you know. Man, I went to the restaurant, and you got to tell somebody, We've got a guy in our church that attends a 730 service, and I've mentioned this for several Sundays now, but he's developed a line of barbecue sauces and some spices, and he's from Louisiana like I am, and it's got that little kick, you know, and that I like in in, in food. And he gave me some to try. You know what I did? I went and bought a case of everything he had. And I, I've been giving them out to people. And I gave some to Pastor Donnie because anything that good, it's got to be shared. Amen. And you don't want to keep it to yourself. And I don't know how things are at your house, and I'm wrapping this up. But I've even got my own jar. Do y'all, do, do y'all have things that work like that at y'all's house? I got my own jar. Nobody in my house is allowed to touch it but me. If you want some, I got a whole case of it sitting right there in the cupboard. I am the least selfish person you've ever met. I'll give you a jar, I'll give you two. But that's my jar in that fridge right there. And when I come in on Saturday, you know what I do? I walk right in the house, set my suitcase down. I walk over, open the the cutlery drawer. I get out a spoon. I walk over to the fridge and I open the icebox door and I get my jar out. Did you get the idea? It's my jar. And I don't need any pork, I don't need any sausage, I don't need any brisket, I don't need any chicken. I just, I just dip my spoon and I eat it all by itself. It's that good. And what I'm trying to tell you is when you find something that's worth telling, you got to tell somebody about it. You can't keep it to yourself And as I close today, I want you to understand when it comes to good news, there is no better news than Jesus is alive. He has overcome death, hell, and the grave. The Son of God is risen. And that's good enough for me. Amen. Good enough that I'll spend the rest of my life serving him.